0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. God, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us so that we can know you we thank you for the grace that you've given us on the cross so that we can be in fellowship with you and lord we thank you for your throne that we can come boldly before you to speak to you the king of the universe lord be with us at this time let us focus on you let us give our attention stir our affection for you And God, I pray that you will be glorified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, you can start flipping to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter six. We've been in 1 Corinthians. Um, I've been in 1 Corinthians when I uh, come up here for a minute now, and we've made it all the way to chapter six. So give me a couple more years and we'll make it to chapter eight soon. So, uh, last time we were in 1 Corinthians, Paul was confronting the church, this church in Corinth, this messed up church, he was confronting them over their pride of tolerating clearly scandalous sin. He told the church that they are not loving this individual well, By applauding his sin, they are actually helping him in the destruction of his soul. So the church should do the loving thing, and the loving thing is to call him out, to warn him that his lifestyle, that his fruit does not look like he knows the Lord, and that he should repent and run to Jesus. He should repent and receive Christ. So today, Paul is going to address the third major issue so far in 1 Corinthians. The first being the disunity in the church. The second issue being this scandalous sin that they were proud of tolerating. And the third issue that Paul is addressing is right here at the beginning of chapter six. And Paul is making one very easy, very straightforward, very practical point that I think all of us can expert, can master in one day. And the point that Paul is making is do not sue other Christians. It's like, wow, that's, a, that's an exciting text to preach. That's, I didn't know Judge Judy was in the Bible. But here it is, and we'll see that this issue goes a little bit deeper than these Christians being petty and immature. Again, Paul is is addressing more than just the surface level issue. He's addressing a heart issue that is hurting, that is killing the church's unity and hurting its witness. And I think you and I will see that this passage has immediate application to us today. I don't think many people in this church. I'm looking out. I don't think there's any lawsuits between believers, um, but there's still great application that that Paul has for you and me today. So, with that in mind, if you're turned to First Corinthians chapter six, you can go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word together. And while we're reading, keep, keep your eyes open, keep your ears open for, for some application that you see. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Paul says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if The world shall be judged by you. Are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know you not that we should judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother, and that before even unbelievers? Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, you do wrong and defraud and to your brethren. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. Listen closely. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. Thank you. You can have a seat. So, man, I love that text, and such were some of you, but I'm not there yet. So what seems to be going on here is Paul, there's at least two church members in this church who are at odds. There's church member one who is suing church member two. He has been cheated, he has been wronged by church member two, and instead of handling the situation responsibly within the church as Paul says is obvious, church member one takes church member two to civil court to have pagan Judge Judy handle the case. And the connection between this passage about lawsuits and the passage that we studied last week about the scandalous sin that was celebrated in Corinth, the the connection here is the, the Corinthian church in both of these passages, has made a mess of things by neglecting its responsibility to lovingly judge its members. They are throwing away a key element of discipleship, and that element is loving accountability. So instead of stepping in and calling out sin in their congregation and walking alongside the members to seek forgiveness and make things right the church said well this might be a little awkward we'll, we'll we'll let we'll let the pagans handle this we'll let them sort all this stuff out you know the not my job not my prob and they sidestepped their responsibility of discipling. and now uh, a quick note as we Get into this text. This is uh, it says it's it's a, a matter against one another. This is clearly what we would consider today, and what even the ancient world would consider. This is a case of civil law, not criminal law. For all of us who went to law school, do we we have an understanding of civil and criminal law? Um, all I know is O.J. Simpson. Maybe I don't know. O.J. Simpson was. Uh, innocent in the criminal court, but he was guilty in the civil court for the same crime. Um, I don't know how that worked, but uh, there's a difference between civil and criminal. Well, here what we see is clearly uh, a a civil case. This is not saying, as you'd be surprised by the people who have interpreted this, this is not saying that uh, the church should have some church-sanctioned criminal system with its own police force judges and executioners, like today, we, we're kind of like, who would think that? That's, that's silly. Who would think that? But we live in post-Reformation, post-Enlightenment, Western democracy. We can't fathom how integrated church and state used to be. But over the history Man, uh, they would use this passage specifically, along with some others, especially Old Testament passages, to say, hey, the church has the right to execute this person. The church has the right to convict and condemn and execute this person. Well, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying clearly criminal cases, Romans 13, are the, the, the government is given the power of the sword to execute justice the government is given the responsibility to try to stop and punish crimes. The government is given that authority. We don't always see it exercised rightly in all governments, but that's their jurisdiction, while the church's jurisdiction is spiritual life, is sin against another brother. It is not a criminal case. So, you read the news and you see churches cover up gross crimes against innocent human beings and they'll use a passage like this to try to justify what they've done. Well, that is twisting the text and the context. So that is not what Paul is saying. This is clearly a civil case. Um, Paul says, almost a petty matter and they're taking it to court. That's where it's, it's, it's whack and the church needs to handle that. You guys know what whack means, by the way? That is whack. I don't think people say that anymore. Um, Youth, can you back me up? Just say yeah, okay. So with that in mind, what this text is addressing is something more petty, something that would have been handled in the civil court. It's not a heinous criminal act, but church member one, one was truly cheated Against. It was truly sinned against. He was truly wronged. And Paul is saying, for this sinning against a brother, the church was responsible to step in. And the main idea that we see here in this text, that I want us to grab one to and to run with. the main idea is, if you are a Christian, you have a new identity and a new purpose. So we should live out that identity and purpose by showing overflowing forgiveness and radical repentance. That was a long sentence, so I'll say it again. As a Christian, you have a new identity and a new purpose. As a church gathered Christians gather together. We have a new identity and a new purpose. So because of that identity and purpose, we should show overflowing forgiveness and radical repentance. So I want to look at those first two underlying truths, and then we'll look at those two displays of faith. So first, if you belong to Christ, you have a new Identity. Now, identity is, is a buzzword. It's been popular for like 10, 15 years now of, of man, this is who I am. It roots back into um, secular psychology. Why am I going on this train of thought? I was going to talk about Freudian psychology. You guys don't care. Uh, I just like listening to those audiobooks. books. But um, no, identity, it's, it's who I am you know a long time ago the generation would say who i am is an american first who i am is a father first well now we've we've got other things going on and culture says your identity is something that is not external to you but something that you choose well and we we see the consequences of that but there is something outside of us god must give us our identity we can't we don't have the autonomy we don't have the the we aren't god and we can't determine that for ourselves and god gives us a new identity and if you are in christ your new identity is you are a saint first and foremost you are a saint Now, we say the word saint, and a lot of us think, um, you know, the the Roman Catholic kind of tradition of sainthood, uh, how, you know, saints are these Christians who have a special endowment of God's grace, so much grace that they are able to skip over purgatory and go directly to heaven, while us uh, more common Christians would go to purgatory first to be purged. Um, Well, get that idea out of your head. That is not a saint. saint is not some kind of super Christian. A saint is someone who is holy and set apart. That's what what the word means. And God says that you and I, when we give our lives to Christ, we are saints. We are called to be holy and set apart. And here in verse 1 and 2, Paul calls the Corinthian church. Like, I, I, I would get it if he was talking to the Philippian church. But we've seen how bad the Corinthian church has been. But he calls the Corinthian church saints. He says, D- uh, shouldn't you bring it before the saints? And then in uh, verse 2, he calls them saints again. And then he uses the word you in replace of saints. So he's saying, you are saints. And why is this important? Well, this is the whole premise of Paul's argument here in this text. You are set apart. You are supposed to be different from the world. You belong to the risen king of the universe. You are set apart for his kingdom, not the world's kingdom. You are supposed to live like you belong to the next world, not this world. You are supposed to be counter-cultural. So what are you doing acting like The world. This church was to be set apart as saints. And our church today. You and I today. If we belong to Christ. We are to be set apart as saints. All those who give their life to Christ. As verse 11 says. Are washed. Are sanctified. Same word for for saints. And justified. You are a saint. You and I are called to be a part, set apart for the king of the universe, and that is our identity. That is who we are as people, individuals, and as a community, who we most essentially are to our nucleus, as one movie says. I don't know. Who we most are, our identity identity is saints. Someone who is set apart for the holy king. And I'm emphasizing this because do do you realize your identity today? Do you realize that God calls you a saint? God calls you a holy one? I think the enemy tries to tempt us to forget this identity so often. I think he tries to tempt us in a couple ways to forget it. I think it can be our honest temptation to, to beat ourselves up and say, well, I mean, you don't know what I've done. Surely I'm not a saint. I'm not a holy man. Well, you know, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Yes, you are just a sinner saved by grace, but that sinner who is saved by grace has right now at the moment all of Christ's righteousness put on them. That's called imputation. He, we have been given Christ's righteousness as if it belongs to us. When we belong to Christ, God looks at us and he sees what Jesus did. And then he takes what we did and he puts it on Jesus on the cross. So realize that this is your identity. You are a son, you are a daughter of the king, and he sees you as a holy one set apart, so live that out. Yes, you are going to mess up, but that's part of the sanctification process, to get back up, empowered by the Spirit, and to walk that next step with the Savior. So Haddon is walking around now. Some of you have seen him in the halls. He's walking unaided, so he's like toddling around. And guess what? He falls over, he falls down a lot. He bumps his noggin almost too much. But as a father, when he falls down, I don't look at him, get angry, and yell at him for falling down. No, I'm excited. I'm like jumping up and down. Like, look at this guy who couldn't walk by himself a week ago. He's walking up and down the hallways. He's running away from me. Like, we're, we're cheering and yelling for him for his next steps. Not yelling at him. That was the opposite of the point I was trying to make. No, we're excited for those next steps. I, I, I stoop down. I help him get back up. And then I'm excited when he keeps going. And I think some of us forget our identity as saints and we think that when God is just waiting for us to mess up and he's an angry father who's going to yell at us whenever we stumble. But that is a lie from the enemy. He is a good father and he doesn't just like put up with you. He is ecstatic about you. He loves you. And then second, there's the, kind of other temptation. Some of us forget our identity as saints when we choose to give ourselves over to sin, like church members one and two here in Corinth. Well, I'm going to fall anyway, so why should I bother to get back up and walk with Christ? Those are defeated words. Christ gives us victory on the cross. Christ gives us the Spirit to empower us. And Christ right now is at the right hand of the throne of the Father praying for us that we will take that next step. And he has given us his people, the church, to walk together, to link arms with. So saints, walk in this victory. Be confident of your identity, not because of who you are, but because of whose you are, right? Then number two, as saints, we have a new purpose. We live for an eternal kingdom that will never fade away. We live to inherit an eternal kingdom. We will, Paul's saying in verses two and three, that we will rule over the new heavens and the new earth as co-heirs with Christ. That's kind of mind-blowing to think about but we will be ruling with Christ one day on the new earth. And that's what Paul is saying in verse two and three, that we will, he says, judge the world. You will judge angels. And Paul says, if you can look forward to that great kingdom, if you can look forward to ruling with Christ where you're going to judge the world and angels, if you can do that and look at that, why in the world can you not handle this silly little issue that you're dealing with right now? It's an argument for all the commentators, and I didn't know what this word meant, it was a cool phrasing, but it's an argument from greater to lesser. He's saying, look at this great thing you can do. Can you not deal with this issue inside of your church? We as saints, have that purpose, that eternal kingdom that we're living for. We are not living for this world. We are living for the next. God, Christ will come and make all things new, judging the wicked, bringing his people to himself where we will live in perfect fellowship with God. We will be eternally joyful and satisfied and that's the world we're living for. That's the kingdom of we're living for and we should do everything we can to prepare ourselves for that kingdom and to prepare our friends our neighbors our families for that kingdom that is our purpose that saints live for and because of this identity because of this purpose saints born again believers will show overflowing forgiveness if everyone take your finger put it in the air wave it like you just don't care I'll put it on verse five. <laughs> Paul says, I speak to your shame. He says, shame on you. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. This is unthinkable. Now verse seven. Now therefore, therefore, There is utterly a fault among you because you go to law with one another. Why do you not rather take wrong? Why do you not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Paul says, why do you not rather take wrong? It is better for you to be wronged to suffer injustice for the sake of Christ. It is better for you to offer forgiveness and receive dishonor than if you were to bring dishonor on Christ's name. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourself, but rather give room for God's wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. Everyone loves this part. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not, over, uh, do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says forgiveness is our top priority as Christians. Forgiving is an act of faith. Forgiveness is, is trusting that the Lord is going to make this wrong, he's going to take this wrong, and he's going to make it right. Maybe not in this life, but in, in the next, in the next world, we will see how right it was. It's faith in Romans 8.38 that he will take this wrong and he will use it for our good and his glory. So forgive and overcome evil with good. As saints, our priority isn't our own reputation. It's not our own position. It's not our financial standing. Our priority is shaped by an eternity with Christ. So when we are wronged, remember the wrongs that we have been forgiven of. One of my favorite parables that I go to again and again for the youth is the parable of the Unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter eighteen. I like to summarize it in youth, um, where uh, there was a servant and he owed his master. You ready for this? A gazillion dollars. Take all of Elon Musk's, all of Bill Gates, all of Warren Buffett, all of Jimmy Buffett, and all of Justin Stevers, <laughs> and all of Justin Stevers' money put it together and times it by two, and that's how much this guy owed his master. And it came day for the the master said, "'Hey, it's time to pay up what you owe me.'" Well, this guy could have lived a 1,000 lifetimes and never paid up what he owed him. And he fell down before the master and said, "'Please be patient. "'I will pay you back everything.'" Well, good luck paying back everything, But the master had compassion on the servant, and he forgave him of his debt completely. That's great news. So what does the servant do? He immediately goes to another servant. This servant owes him $1,000, and he wraps his hands around his neck and says, pay me what you owe me. Servant two owed servant one a significant amount of money, but it was nothing compared to the gazillion dollars that he owed the master, that he was forgiven of. And, and the, the second service servant said, please be patient with me. I will pay you back everything. And servant one said, no way, throw him in jail until he pays back every penny he owes me. Well, the master heard about this and he was furious. So he said to the First servant, he said, shouldn't you also have had mercy on your uh, fellow servant as I had had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. I love this story because of how crazy it is, because of how obvious it is, because of how often we forget to apply this story. If you are a Christian here tonight, you have been forgiven a debt that you could have never, ever repaid. You have done things far worse to the king of the universe than any human could do to you and you still won't forgive someone. Now, I know there are people who have truly been wronged, truly been sinned against, truly been hurt. No one is denying that those, those wrongs or, or those, that pain isn't real, but Christ said if you are willing to accept his forgiveness, you must be willing to extend his forgiveness. And this will not be easy, but the Lord doesn't leave us to ourselves with these issues. He gives us his spirit again to empower us. He gives us his church again to encourage us, and he gives us his word to instruct us. So lean on them. Extend this forgiveness. Because we we, we extend this forgiveness because we see the eternal purpose of our own forgiveness. Why not rather take wrong? Why not rather turn the other cheek? Jesus said. Why not rather love your enemy? What if that was the motto that we repeated to ourselves over and over and over again this week? If we repeated, why not rather take wrong? I bet we could find a hundred different ways to live that out, a hundred different opportunities to live and glorify our merciful God. So a quick challenge before the last point to you guys and to me this week is to have that verse on replay in your head, why not rather be wronged? And when you're tempted to be angry, to defend yourself, to get back at someone, instead look for opportunities to forgive. Have that ringing in your ears. Why not rather be wronged for Christ's sake? And then last, because of this identity and purpose, saints will show radical repentance. So instead of forgiving, this this church was doing wrong and defrauding. And here Paul shifts. He he goes from rebuking the the first part, one through seven, one through eight-ish. The first part, he's kind of rebuking church member one, the sewer, the litigator might be a word, but he's, he's rebuking the sewer. That sounds bad. Litigator, who knows? He's rebuking him. Well, now he's shifting to church member two, the one who's doing the extortioning taking your brother to court was sinful, you must repent, but Paul hasn't forgotten about the one who wronged the first brother. This person is showing that he sinned and he has no remorse. And Paul gives a stern warning to him and to us today. If you are living in unrepentant sin, if your lifestyle is to reject God by loving sin more than loving him, If this is your consistent, unrepentant state, Paul says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Your life and your fruit shows that you do not know Christ. You do not love him. You do not cherish him. And if this describes us today, we should be scared for our souls. Verses 9 and 10 are terrible news these people fornicators idolaters adulterers homosexuals thieves covetous drunkards abusers and swindlers will if they die right now they will go to hell for the evil treason that they have committed against the god of the universe his wrath will justly fall on them and they are hopeless and helpless to satisfy this wrath and the worst news is every human being is born an idolater. Every human being is born rejecting God and loving this rejecting rejection. We, we love putting ourselves, putting other gods, putting our stuff in the place of God. We love ourselves more than the God who made us. And we all Everyone in here falls into this list, and we will not inherit the kingdom of God. We deserve God's wrath, but verse 11 has the good news and such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus by the Spirit of our God. This, this simply shows us that no one, whatever the sin, whatever the sinner, whatever the lifestyle, no one is too far gone from Christ's love. No one can outsend the grace of God. There is hope in Christ. The good news is that we were enemies of God, but he made a way to make us new, to bring us from enemies to families, from enemies to sons and daughters. Through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, you and I can be washed, sanctified, and justified if we turn from our sins and give our lives to him. God's, we can be saved from God's wrath and saved to God's family. So the question is, have you truly been washed or does your life look more like verses 9 and 10 without verse 11? If so, the good news is no one's too far gone. There's hope today. But for those who have been washed, for us saints as we toddle towards our great Savior, as we walk in step with the Spirit, There are going to be sins and weights and temptation that try to trip us up and try to make us fall. What is that weight in your life? What is that sin in your life, that sin that keeps causing you to stumble? Are you willing to do everything necessary to cut that sin off? Are you willing to live a life of continual, repetitive, radical repentance? Jesus said, if your hand causes you to sin, you should cast it off. For it's better for you to walk into heaven maimed than to be thrown into hell. If your phone causes you to sin, throw it away. If your relationship causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to limp into heaven than to be thrown into hell. Do you realize that sin that you keep around is a matter of life and death? Church member two did not realize this. And he was in danger of not inheriting eternal life. And we so easily deceive ourselves. So as a community, as a church, as a countercultural community of saints, we should lovingly lock arms together, run to Christ together, bearing one another's burdens, confessing sins to one another, praying for one another, making sure that the guy beside me, the girl beside me, that we make it to the Savior together. That is what we are to do is living as saints for God's eternal purpose. So live out this identity, live out this purpose together. Everything that you do, as Barry and Megan come up, everything that you do, do it for that kingdom that is to come. Whether you eat or drink, do it for the kingdom. Whatever you, whether it's school or work, sports, whatever it is, do it for the kingdom. That means maybe saying no to things that you want to say yes to. That means saying yes to things that you want to say no to. But what can we do to together as a community go against the culture of the world and run to Christ together? thank you for listening today if you'd like to know more about Central Baptist Church events and ministries please visit our webpage at cbcannapolis.com.